Hey guys, my name is Jordan Koss. Welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. This 16-episode series is based off my final project for my Doctorate of Ministry degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. The title of that final project is Almost Essential Evangelists, Improving Retirement Asset Accumulation for Mainstream Church of Christ Pastors. In this series, we will interview eight different specialists in eight separate episodes. And we will also interview two pastors from each of eight different regions around the U.S. This final project was inspired by 10 years of ministry in three different churches of Christ from Georgia to Northern California from 2010 to 2019, as well as my time as a financial professional in training in 2020. That is where I learned about the retirement crisis America is in and will be experiencing in the coming years. Now, I have three goals for this podcast. One, provide an accessible, denomination-specific qualitative conversation for Church of Christ pastors and leaders. Two, introduce leaders and listeners to retirement vehicles and strategies they may not have heard about before. And three, provide encouragement, motivation, and knowledge to save for the last third of life. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Okay, guys, welcome. My name is Jordan Koss, and this is the Almost Essential Podcast. This podcast was created for a Fuller Demon uh, final project, and this is the first recorded episode, first of 16. And so, uh, go ahead. <laughs> That's right. And so, I want to introduce real quick uh, Lars Coburn, my co host. Lars, if you could say a few words about yourself. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Jordan, and uh, get to be part of these conversations. I serve as the director of university relations at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon, and was a youth pastor uh, in the Churches of Christ for almost eight years, uh, full-time in mostly Southern California. And so I'm excited to explore these conversations further. All right. Sounds good. Glad to be that you're part of this. And then our uh, special guest today is Trey Finley. Trey, go ahead and uh, say a few words about yourself. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, from 2018 to 2022, I was the executive director of 1128. Uh, we were an organization that was devoted to countering the causes and effects of burnout, especially among pastors. Uh, we did a lot of work among pastors who were in the liminal space of do I stay or do I go, sitting with them in that space. Uh, we worked with them uh, through some of the toughest challenges, both psychologically as well as spiritually in that space. Uh, before that, I've spent some time in the business world, but I started my career uh, with about 10 years in ministry, stretching from student ministry all the way up to executive work uh, when I left uh, quite a few years ago. We will we'll refrain from saying how many, um, but uh, it is my pleasure to be here, Jordan, and I appreciate the invite. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for being a part of this. And I'm really looking forward to your perspective, both as a, a former pastor and with your work with 1128. So this is gonna let's let's get kick this off. The first thing I want to do now that we got our intros out of the way is I want to uh, before we jump into the Q and A with you, Trey, to kind of summarize uh, my project, uh, the argument behind the project, and the purpose of this podcast. Does that sound good? Great. All right. And so here's the gist: um, there's an American DIY retirement crisis, according to such authors as Teresa, Teresa Ghilarducci. If you don't know who Teresa Ghilarducci is, probably go on Netflix and, and check out Money Explained. There's an episode on retirement, and she is 
on that explaining what she means by the American DIY retirement crisis. And that crisis is a result of what she says, a broken system and broken tools and vehicles resulting in people not having enough money that's going to last them throughout their entire retirement, people living longer, et cetera. So this is fueling an economic retirement and moral crisis all in one. And the main cause, and this is really interesting, I didn't know this till my experience trying to train to be a financial professional in 2020, but the main cause, according to Ghilarducci, is an over-reliance on the 401k and other traditional divine, defined contribution plans like the like IRAs, which actually make it impossible to save enough to last all of retirement, she says. You know, Social Security, it's, uh, it's not the main cause, but people will get less money from that traditional source as well moving into the future, she argues. And and one result of uh, this crisis is elder poverty, she goes on to say, or near poverty, and the negative trickle-down effect that that will have on younger generations as well, trying to support those in retirement. Um, and another result, and this is, uh, I found this really fascinating as well, is uh, retirement inequality. And what she means by that is that this retirement inequality is actually worse than income inequality in this country. The new class divide as a result is one's level of retirement anxiety, whether it's say on a scale of one to 10, you know, and that's the new class divide she talks about. And in my research, I, I, I kind of found some correlation between Church of Christ pastor's experience of saving, accumulating assets retirement and what Gilarducci had to say, because I think what I found is that Church of Christ pastors are a microcosm of this crisis. You know, there's the ACU salary survey, and you can find that for free online to see uh, what a certain number of pastors in the Church of Christ are paid and how they're supported financially uh, every given year. But uh, the only other study that I found was two by the sociologist and professor James Knapp uh, over the course of the past 10 to 15 years. He did two studies. One was on, on a number of uh, Church of Christ pastors in Texas, and then there was a national study after that. And he found that uh, his conclusion from both is that Church of Christ pastors have an over-reliance, like Ducci was saying, have an over-reliance on those traditional sources, Social Security and IRAs, which he found were, these were the only sources that were over 50% of the participants were planning on to draw from in retirement. So what Ducci says, I, I also found Knapp saying the same thing in his finding on Church of Christ pastors. You know, other uh, causes for pastors not having a plan to retirement, he said they work for smaller churches, majority of Churches of Christ are smaller congregations, you work longer as a pastor, um, hurts your ability to retire in terms of financially, and living in parsonage were also causes of not having a plan to retire. And he concluded that churches need to take clergy retirement more seriously and get away from an outdated 20th century compensation model, which was a low salary parsonage, but also you go out and do some gospel meetings to get further income. And this, uh, this is another thing that surprised me. Experts on retirement like Ghilarducci and Merton, who wrote in the Harvard Business Review, um, said that what is needed are actually better products, not by better financial education. Because, quote, we cannot educate ourselves out of this crisis. What Ghilarducci says we need is a pension-style retirement income on top of Social Security and Medicare to resolve this crisis. But the system currently offers no cost-effective means to convert retirement savings into this life lifetime, lifelong income. 
So we, we may never get a perfect retirement vehicle. I don't think that's uh, realistic, but Knapp concluded that what we do need right now is to have a qualitative conversation with pastors and other specialists, uh, those who experience in Churches of Christ, in order to find a way forward. And that's where this podcast comes in. When I was thinking about what do I do in terms of uh, uh, the final project and uh, what might help others as a result of doing this research. And so what this podcast hopefully will serve as for you know pastors, for church leaders, and, and anyone interested in uh, trying to figure out how do I save and accumulate assets for retirement is somewhat, in the words of Hamilton, a room where it happens. Um, I, I can only think of maybe one time in my entire training as a, as a pastor uh, in undergrad and graduate school where we actually had a conversation about this. And that was just about Social Security and whether to opt in or out. And I had no clue what they were even talking about when they were having that conversation. And so hopefully this can be that room where everybody who hasn't been a part of a conversation like that can be a part of through these 16 episodes. And so with that, um, I don't know if you guys have anything you want to share before we jump into the first question, but do you, anybody have to, anything to share after that brief summation? At least I, I tried to be brief there. No, let's, let's have a conversation, Jordan. All right, great. So question number one, Trey, for you is how does your story and experience as a pastor relate to the DIY retirement crisis as framed by Gilarducci and others, if at all? Yeah, I think the story I would tell, very similar to what you described, Jordan, when I was in my graduate level work, uh, my first round of graduate level work uh, in 1998, I interned with uh, someone who uh, I'm going to leave nameless here because I'm going to be very critical of uh, the advice that he gave me. Um, and the advice that he gave me is one that I now realize was shared with a lot of people. Uh, who were going through ministry and planning to be in ministry, the assumption that you'd be in ministry your whole life, um, which, of course, we'll get back to kind of the question about soul care later on. But he told me the following things. He said, number one, make sure that you opt in for housing allowance, use your housing allowance, and mark your entire salary as housing allowance. Okay. Second of all, opt out of Social Security. Um, so that basically you're getting paid everything in your lap tax-free, minus the little bit that'll come out. Uh, you're, you'll essentially be walking away with the cash. Um, additionally, uh, he recommended, um, although fewer and fewer churches do this, and I'm grateful for it, he recommended, if possible, be a 1099 employee. So again, everything comes to you. And then you get the chance to say how much you're going to set aside for retirement, how much you're going to set aside for taxes, and you become the master of your own fate. Okay. <laughs> mm. um, and I know now what I didn't know then, which is that's not a great approach to thinking about <laughs> life beyond ministry would look like. It makes a lot mm. of assumptions, beginning with the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps approach, the DIY approach you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so say more a little bit about the teaching, how you were taught to opt out of Social Security. Was there like a scriptural argument for that that they heard? Or was it just like, hey, the government stinks, so keep your money where, you know, where it should be in your own pockets? Uh, it was more the second. Uh, okay. And uh, <laughs> it really was based on uh, what I would, I would consider be, to be disingenuous. 
Yeah. Because the, the language in the IRS code is if you have a religious objection, right, you can opt out. But of course, there was no religious objection. I didn't have an objection to Social Security. Matter of fact, these days at 47, I just the opposite. I think still Social Security uh, is a pretty critical piece of, not the whole thing, but a piece of how we uh, how we approach that end of life, that last season of our of our life. And I, yeah, I, uh, mm, yeah, I, that was the advice that I was given and it was ethically gray, frankly. Yeah. And also, are you not supposed to tell somebody to do that because it is supposed to be an individual decision, right? <laughs> right. That's <laughs> uh, very interesting. Lars, do you have any thoughts on what he had to say there? Well, so yeah, as I was getting into my first job, I was coached a little bit similar um, but this was even more nebulous. Uh, this person was giving me recommendation. Well, if you have income that is from a university, let's say you're teaching a class, uh, keep that money in social security. And, uh, and it's kind of, you know, a requirement, actually, most other entities will not opt out, uh, because you're not doing sacerdotal duties for them. And so there was this split, you pay social security for that income, and you don't for your minister salary. I'm, I'm curious with your housing allowance um, comment, because, uh, you know, that's supposed to be an agreed upon predetermined thing with your church. And, uh, you know, unless you're married and your spouse is working too, then the assumption that all of your income is going to your housing allowance, um, yeah, again, seems to be another version where we're kind of telling a white lie, if not a more overt lie. And so I'd be curious what you'd say to that kind of comment about like, we're not just being disingenuous, we're actually lying. Yeah, I think I think it is problematic, uh, the way in which uh, most churches have extended the, the housing allowance over into a space which the church does not own. The church does not have any sort of purview over how that is used. Uh, and, you know, it's for the uh, opportunist uh, who goes into ministry, the financial opportunist, well, that just looks like, hey, it's a loophole in the tax code. Let's jump right on through because the IRS doesn't care and we're just going to take advantage of what's given to us. Um, you know, on this side, <laughs> excuse me, on this side of ministry, um, I, I have a lot of questions about it. Uh, I have a lot of questions and uh, a lot of it goes back as you as you mentioned Jordan it goes back to this DIY distrust in government distrust in other people which seems very much at odds with a and you know, this is Martin Luther King Day uh, with the the idea that we are all of one that whatever affects one directly affects the other indirectly uh, that we are caught up in this great mutuality uh, as Dr. King has said and uh, the financial mindset that I was taught was very much the opposite of that belief. Uh, it was go get it yourself. No one's going to take care of you. And if you don't take care of yourself, you've got no one to blame but you. Yeah, that does not sound like uh, um, what I've been studying, especially in, in light of uh, when trying to think of retirement theologically. Um what we read about when we uh, we see some theologians talk about the Nazareth Manifesto, how 
it, you know, just kind of, it's all about you. It does not, that, that does not sound theologically legit at all. And one other thing that I wanted to uh, highlight uh, when you, in terms of what Gilarducci means when she says DIY, she talks about, she calls it DIY because um, back in like the I don't know, 70s and 80s when 401s were created, uh, companies kind of switched from offering a pension, which it was all the employer's responsibility to give you that pension to make sure you have something income and retirement to rely on. And it shifted all the responsibility to the employee with the 401k. And uh, as a result, she says like the traditional three-legged stool of social security, pension, and personal savings that kind of uh, fell apart with uh, could lo everybody losing mm. their pension. And so the 401k turned retirement saving into like a DIY enterprise. And, and she also has called the 401k kind of a 40-year experiment that has failed miserably. So I, I would, I would agree. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of questions. We don't have a lot in 401k and I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have, we're not tied. We haven't tied our investments, uh, to a, a company in that way. Um, mm -hmm. and we haven't, uh, we've, we use other vehicles, which I know we'll get into here in just a little bit. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and, and ask that question. Like what vehicles then did you utilize in ministry and what do you utilize now? If they're all different. Well, we've stayed consistent on our investment uh, strategy. Um, I, like a lot of ministers, I suspect, coming especially uh, right out of college and having thirty or forty thousand dollars being, you know, paid to me a year. Oh my gosh, that's so much money! Uh, and when you're single and you're in ministry, it's like money, you know, sitting in the bank. And no, of course, it did not get invested. Uh, it wasn't until I was married that we we really sat down with a financial advisor who said, okay, uh, the three-legged stool for you, Trey, and your family is going to be one, a life insurance investment tool. Uh, number two, you're going to have just your, your savings and you know what you're going to do to make sure you stay liquid. And then third, you're going to have retirement accounts like uh, the SEP IRA or the IRA. Um, eventually, for us, we've added uh, college savings 529s as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that was our three-legged stool, was okay. savings, a life insurance investment vehicle, and then also just you know uh, money that we would pay taxes on now, but not later when we retired. That was, that was very, very specific, is pay the taxes now, yeah. so you're not paying later. Yeah. That's great. You're right. So this brings up a, a question I have about uh, the minister housing allowance tie in with the old model of parsonage, um, because the churches I served had parsonages, um, but I was often lower down uh, and I didn't meet the parsonage requirement, whether they were full or they were renting them out and getting income from them uh, to outside people. Um, so for you uh, in ministry and then now post-ministry, how has uh, physical property, uh, a house, which often is another part of the retirement conversation that uh, goes unnoticed, is that if you're living in church-owned things, getting that either free or reduced or applying your housing allowance to that as rent, uh, you're not investing in a home that will accrue value, be able to be mm -hmm. something you live in later or sell. Um, and in places like Jordan and I served in Southern California, 
uh, home prices, we're, you know, we get out of ministry and we're not going to be able to afford a home. Um, and so often that's a subsidy where the church has these owned properties and they're subsidizing the minister's salary by providing house rental, um, you know, rent at below market uh, just to just to be able to not pay us as much. Yeah, I what I, I'm sure I, I can't quote anything here as far as resources, but I can say that it's generally accepted uh, that home ownership is the surest path to a stable level of wealth, not not revenue, wealth, a stable level of wealth to pass along to your generations. And we could have a whole conversation about the, the racist side of that. And also, I think in this, this applies very much to the church standpoint, the classist side of that, um, that we have assumed that ministers are going to be of a certain class, a certain willingness to be financially austere mm. for all of their life. And I think that's probably a convenient reading uh, for churches in the way in which they've chosen to pay their and take care of their pastors in general. Right. There is a, a tradition within the Stone Campbell movement of this uh, and thinking of the ideal for the minister, the evangelist, the pastor is to be poor. Right. Um, and I'm sure that's not uh, just in the Stone Campbell tradition in American his church history. But there's that assumption that it seems that also perhaps has contributed to perhaps how well or how not well Church of Christ pastors have uh, been able to accumulate assets for retirement. So let me ask you this uh, follow-up cue to question one is, uh, what is uh, your what was your level of retirement anxiety in ministry, uh, according to Gilarducci's term? And what's your level of in- retirement anxiety now, being out of it for over 10 years? Well, uh, we had such good advice early on that I really didn't worry about retirement at all. At that point, when I was 25 years old, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're starting so early and we're doing so great. And, you know, just put a little bit in now and you'll have a ton later. Uh, And now, you know, 22 years out of um, coming into ministry for the first time. Uh, I, I have a different feel about it. Uh, I, I don't feel insecure now, but I am more aware now of just how fragile that can be, that sense of security of, oh, I'm doing fine. Um, yeah. You know, that this is one of the reasons why in our conversations, Jordan, I, 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 want, I want us to make sure we talk about how do you stay liquid and flexible? Mm. Because for so many ministers uh, who are just making ends meet, uh, the ability to stay flexible matters. Um, and so I, for us, I don't feel a lot of um, a lot of stress, but I'm sanguine about it because things can change in a heartbeat. Right. I feel like we've done what is ours to do uh, in this day and age in the United States of America, in our current economy and in our current status in the world. Mm-hmm. That is not a sure thing, even though we've done what it is ours to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh, one thing Gilarducci says is like majority of Americans don't even have the option of having an employer-sponsored retirement plan like a 401k, and many uh, many of them also, when given that option, don't take it. And so you have only a select few, the higher end of the socioeconomic ladder, if you will, in America, that uh, have a positive outlook or a low retirement anxiety because they make enough money in order to contribute to their 401k, um, whereas most a majority of Americans 
don't have one or don't make enough to even say, you know what, I feel like contributing to it or no, they need to keep that money. So they opt out of it or for whatever reason. But um, okay. So let me, let me ask you this question was, it, it doesn't sound like it, but, but was finances and or retirement savings a reason for your transition out of ministry or no? No, um, I, I left ministry in 2009. Uh, we had a, a number of, uh, of layoffs at our church with the financial crisis of 2008. Okay. hit us pretty hard. Uh, so I left in the midst of that and decided to start my own business okay. uh, in part to make up for ground on that we did not do during ministry. Uh, we could have an entirely different conversation about whether starting a business is a good way to do that, but we won't go down that road today. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I moved out of ministry and went the direction I went in part because I thought, well, this is the way we can make up some ground. The, you know, it'll be a, an unlimited amount of money we can make if I just work hard enough. There's that DIY again. Yeah. Um, and uh, then we'll be able to be just fine for the future. Um, and to our conversation prior, it was in that period of time when things got pretty rough at one period where we got too far into debt. We were able to dip into the life insurance vehicle that we had to pull out an interest-free loan right. that we could use to pay all that down. Without penalties and, and taxes. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that, um, you know, that saved our bacon in a lot of ways because of how we chose to invest early on. Mm-hmm. But leaving ministry, I knew I had to make up ground. Um, and... Uh, there's only, uh, golly, uh, the best advice I ever got was that every dollar you'll save at 25 is 10 you'll have to save at 35. Um, uh, you know, whatever the math is specifically, the point is you got to start early. Yeah. And mm, it's just not happening well enough. Uh, and it's leading to some soul care crises later on where people have to make much more difficult decisions, much more complicated decisions about ministry. Okay, got it, got it. Lars, do you have anything to say before we go on this next question? Yeah, well, I, I'm just thinking about that discipline tension there. In some ways, you're describing that, you know, as we think big picture at the end of your life, it's it's maybe easier to talk about, but it's the really the small bite-sized decisions you make early on, the dollar that you save versus the $100 that you need in retirement. And uh, I think one of the things we're not talking about enough, but maybe in this last year we were starting to in in culture is is inflation and the impact of that and um and so i you know i think your dollar today is going to be worth different um and your saving ability later on your income will be worth actually less probably than the dollar you save today and um and so if you think about it that way that dollar you save now is worth you know, several dollars of future money, um, especially as, you know, things like social security aren't keeping up um, and all of that. So I, yeah, I think that's really important to, to kind of break it down for people to say, it's about disciplines that you're doing today um, that really have big impact. Um, Cause sometimes we can get lost thinking about the future. You can go to a financial planning session and they right. talked about all these things and um i've been to some of those timeshare things and they talk about vacationing and and i'm like yeah but if i don't take my day off in the week i'm not gonna 
I'm not going to uh, be able to take a week off next year or 10 years from now, take three weeks off. So you're selling me a dream I'm not actually ever going to live into. And I think the same could be said about retirement. Um, we need to start disciplining today uh, so that we can actually live into the, the big picture of retirement in the future. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought timeshares were a wonderful investment that just, they grew in value over time. And if you'll invest the time now, it'll be worth so much more later. That's your, <laughs> that's your fifth leg of the retirement stool. <laughs> <laughs> Timeshare. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So question two, uh, moving on. Um, has the DIY, like when I studying the history of Church of Christ, you, you, you find some interesting things. Um, and the historical exploration that I did was trying to see how, you know, the, the pastor system controversy within the Stone Campbell movement that continued on its way in Church of Christ and caused a non, uh, the, uh, non-institutional controversy was an aspect of that as well in the second half or the mid 20th century, how that played a part in kind of like, uh, perhaps the retirement experience of pastors. And so, it just kind of seemed like churches of Christ themselves are like a DIY denomination. And I kind of picked that up from what you're saying, Trey. So the question is, has the DIY nature of churches of Christ contributed to the DIY retirement crisis experience of its pastors? Yeah, I think so. Uh, when you look at, I mean, first of all, uh, I, I never worked for a church that offered a retirement match. Uh, I said, uh, maybe they're out there, but I, I never, I never worked for one. Uh, when you think about the, the assumption that I always sensed from elders and that I, on the back end as a church consultant and as someone caring for pastors saw from that perspective as well, both inside and outside of the church is that the pastors just, just take care of yourself. That's your job. That's your job, Mr. Preacher, uh, Mrs. Children's Minister, uh, Mrs. Associate Minister. It's your job to do that. Um, and uh, that's that's not ours to do. And so there's very much there's very much this hands-off approach to that. Uh, we just trust that you're going to take care of yourself. Um, and again, that's the that whole mutuality thing that we just don't get. And I think in Churches of Christ, the individualistic spirit in which we grew up, uh, as far as in uh, not only the Enlightenment, but also, uh, you know, in, in all of the uh, the fun that was the 1800s, early 1800s revivalism, uh, there was uh, there was something that wasn't passed along there. And that's just the assumption that we take care of each other. My experience was just the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. A follow-up to that is one of the things I found in the Stone Campbell Encyclopedia, J. Curtis Pope, I believe, is the author of uh, one of the articles on evangelists um, in that volume that came out, I think, when I was an undergrad. Um, he said that according to the ecclesiolo ecclesiology of Churches of Christ, um, especially as experienced by evangelists or pastors, is that they function quote-unquote, as almost essential. Do you agree with that sentiment? And if so, what do you, what do you think when you hear that phrase? So the, the pastor is almost essential? Or... The past, yeah, the evangelist pastor is almost essential within Church of Christ ecclesiology. 
I think there is uh, def- there's definitely a disconnect between what we have created as a system of pastors and a professional class, if you will, mm-hmm. versus the structure into which we have intro- we introduced them, which was very much this independent mindset, this uh, you know, this traveling evangelist uh, of, of Kentucky uh, and Illinois and Indiana and all those places where where we had our early beginnings. Um, there, yes, that there is something um, about about that that about that evangelist that that wandering evangelist if you will yeah that is a better fit for how we think about church than having a group of people who are located as a professional class yes absolutely okay. i agree with that okay okay uh, lars do you have any thought on that well that almost Trey, i'm curious because yeah. uh in your experience and, and maybe um mine is primarily pacific northwest west coast um and my grandfather uh, was a was kind of a little bit of a mix in between. He was a mill worker who would preach at small churches of Christ um, in northern Washington, kind of up by uh, the all all over there, fishing towns and stuff, and then into the uh, coastal range of Oregon. And so, you know, he wasn't often. He was writing his check back to the church. I mean, his tithe was his salary, and um, he had some, you know, conversations with his grandmother who had influenced him that, yeah, you, that's what you need to be. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're having a flip to kind of this bivocational ministry model in the missional church movement. So I'm curious with your work in, um, with your business and stuff and, and your care for pastors, especially young pastors coming out of seminaries, maybe where they're reading some of this missional church stuff. Are you seeing a, a kind of a trend back towards that bivocational ministry? Um, and how would you say that compares within the churches of Christ to like outside the churches of Christ? I'll tell a story of a friend, and this is anecdotal 100%, but I, I, th- I do think that it is uh, a, a good microcosm uh, of where we are uh, right now. Uh my friend uh, is a graduate of Harding uh, School of Theology in Memphis, um, where she was one of the few women uh, who were a part of that. Uh, so that in itself is a story. But then she was hired in Northwest Kansas by two different churches in two different denominations, mm-hmm. one of which was the Disciples of Christ, which, of course, is a very egalitarian denomination and it is very much uh very much in that space. Uh, and then she was also hired in Northwest Kansas by an independent Christian church yeah. who theologically with regards to women in the pulpit and women in leadership are about as far the other direction as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, that story anecdotally speaks to the situation in which many of our pastors who are coming out of our seminaries are going to find themselves um, in churches with declining resources, uh, in, in situations where uh, their jobs are more tenuous, um, if they are full-time with a staff of 10, it might be a staff of seven in a couple of years. Um, that We shouldn't be surprised when we see that. If it's a staff of three, we shouldn't be surprised if it's a staff of one. And if it's a staff of one, we shouldn't be surprised if it's a bivocational uh, pastor very soon. Yeah. I would suggest... This is just me. Um, 
if I have a high school student ask me, should I go to do my undergraduate work in Bible and go right into ministry? My answer is absolutely not. <laughs> Get your degree in something else, something that will give you an opportunity to do something of worth and value in the world that will allow you to begin to prepare for retirement and take care of yourself. And if the itch and the calling is still there a few years later, then you can think about going back because bivocational is the future, as you said. And if all we're teaching people is to be fully vocational ministry and bivocational finds them, then not only are they vocationally in a tough spot, they are financially in a tough spot as well. Yeah. And that's what I was seeing again and again and again in 1128 is that tough spot financially because folks had put so much time and effort into being a minister and the mindset for retirement that comes with that of I'll figure it out when I get there. Mm-hmm. Um, or money doesn't matter. I'm doing this for God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had that. You're looking at a class <laughs> of people my age and about 20 years ahead of me that are in a world of hurt. Um, yeah. um, they're they're in a world of hurt. I'm glad they're doing this research for that very reason. Yeah, yeah. I I think that makes an interesting um, point too. That as we're seeing churches uh, with really uh, retired pastors who are retiring later than they ought to. Um, then that means that we have, at least on the West Coast, we've definitely had this experience where we skip a generation of ministers, mm-hmm. um, where we're, we're really having a lot of pulpits been vacated during COVID that should have been vacated about 10 or 15 years earlier and made space for the middle kind of exer generation, if you will. And now we're hoping that there's millennials that will fill these pulpits, but um, the church has either dwindled too much where they can't afford it, um, or there's still someone in the boomer or, or even older generation who's hanging on, uh, sometimes out of financial need. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I can anecdotally speak to some of those experiences for sure, sure. Trey. I appreciate you mentioning that. I got my undergrad in accounting and then <laughs> went to seminary. So um, I maybe was a little ahead of the curve, but, yes. uh, but yeah, I appreciate what you're saying and I can resonate with that. Yeah, according to Interim Ministry Partners Research and Stan Granberg's research with them, uh, most churches of Christ in this country are on the older end. And so the ministers that they're looking to hire are those older ministers that are kind of closer to their age, more boomer, I don't know, whatever you want to say, the older generations. And so um, to even, because I've been in that situation where it's me and there's a an older guy and it's, and they, and those older congregations choose the older guy. So it's like, what, what, what am I doing here? Um, yeah, I've had, I've had that similar experience as well, Lars. And I want to, I wanted to ask, uh, this, this, this follow-up question related to the pastor system controversy, just because when I saw this in my research, I was just like, I, why did I never hear about this before? <laughs> Cause, um, and it was this, it was, did you know that the located salaried, pastor evangelist was one of the top three controversial issues in the early 19th century Stone Campbell movement. Had you heard that before going into ministry, Trey? Before going into ministry, no, Uh, I had not. 
Okay. Uh, Dr. Foster at Abilene Christian University. Uh, everybody nodding their head because we know Dr. Foster. Uh, but Doug Foster uh, put that in our in into my my knowledge set, and I yeah. you know. Yeah, it's interesting, Jordan. Uh, it really is interesting to think about that. Have we tried to put a square peg in a round hole for this long in Churches of Christ? Yeah. Um, it'd be an interesting question to explore. Yeah, because it's it seems it seems to me like that 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 controversy um kind of stayed in the DNA of Churches of Christ through the 20th century and in in some ways had a negative impact on you know, not only how ministers or pastors were compensated. And that includes like retirement assets, because it's like um, when I think of that, you know, the other top two um, controversies were missionary societies and instrumental music. And it's like, you know, I know instrumental music, but being paid as a located salaried minister, that was an issue like holy cow. And so there's there's history in terms of what ministers, pastors are experiencing on the ground that many of them, like I was, wasn't even aware of that was impacting because, you know. Uh, one out of the three churches I did work for in 10, 10 years of full-time ministry, uh, they didn't offer me anything in terms of retirement. And it was a church that possibly could have. They were big enough probably to do that, but they just didn't. And so now that I'm aware of it, I look back, I'm like, holy smokes, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, Jordan, you mentioned that some of the, was it Gildachi or whatever? Um... Gil or Ducci. Giller Ducci, thank you. Sorry, I'm I'm not great with pronunciation, so um, I keep thinking of Ghirardelli chocolate when you say <laughs> I know. it. Um, okay. I'm going to interview uh, who I'm going to interview her on another episode of okay. this, and I'm hoping I don't and be, say Giller. You know what is it? Yeah, the, yeah, the no, chocolate. Yeah, I'll be I'll be very <laughs> um, precise. Yeah. But as, as I was thinking about that comment, we don't need to educate ourselves out of this crisis. I keep coming back to though what would have been there if we had educated and one of the underlying things with all of those controversies um, and really what then established the disciples in its patterns and and things versus the independence and then churches of christ kind of followed suit in their own way um was this idea of organization right whether it's the missionary society or paying you know and and pastors and located pastors and things um, you know, we don't do, we have now these interim ministry partners, but they're all parachurch things. Yeah. Uh, our universities do educate. I actually heard a story at a conference I was just at in January or the, yeah, first week of January here um, from a guy who said that a gal from Freed Hardman was proud of the fact that she helped educate over 2000 ministers to opt out of social security. Oh, like she gosh. went to churches yeah. as an as an educational tool from universities and i i think working at a university now doing church relations work like i think we often are part of the problem and uh, we're trying to be part of the solution now with some educational moments but uh, we we were part of the problem of educating ministers and churches and elderships or lack of education sometimes you know and uh, whether it was misinformation or it was actually just the the lack of it. Uh, you were mentioning churches not providing retirement. I I worked at one that did have a match, and then went to another church that didn't. And part of that was that church had two elders who were uh, self employed, and they'd never had anyone take care of them before either. And I and I wonder if part of our polity uh, as churches of Christ versus places like the disciples within the Stone Campbell movement and then other denominations too, having 
that organization has led to better um, accountability for elderships to take care of ministers. And, and so in many ways, you guys are right. I think we have an education problem. We have a, an ecclesiology or a poly, church polity problem. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I would push against that and say, maybe we do need a little bit of education yeah. um, for our elderships, really, within the Churches of Christ. It may not be education for the minister as much, mm-hmm. but for elderships. No, I, I agree on that. I, I, that is not, I don't think what they mean, perhaps, is to say no financial education whatsoever. But it doesn't, you're, any financial education when it comes to being able to save for retirement I think they says we we just simply need better vehicles that actually do what we need it to do, and there's no financial education that can then shift and transform a vehicle into that, you know. So I think that's what they mean, um, because yeah, I mean, I think I'm a I'm an advocate for financial education, no doubt, um, especially in in preparation for ministry. Um, but I think there's a I think uh, I think that's they would make that delineation too if we asked them. Trey, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was I was thinking about what Lars said a moment ago, and one of the things we did at 1128 um, was to educate elderships on how to better take care of their pastors. Now, we focused a lot on sabbatical and on rhythms of work, um, but one of the one of the principles that I always sat when I sat with elders was to say that we tend to model how we take care of ministers financially after the way in which our experience of the business world has taught us, which is to treat them like uh, instruments for the performance of an organization Hmm. um, rather than as the created beloved of God who have been gifted into this unique space we call church and have chosen to be in that space. Shouldn't we as the church be leading the way and demonstrating what it looks like to, and to use the business term, to invest in our employees. Um, and I think that goes back to your, your point, Lars, about what are, you know, do you elder, we need to be educating elders. And also, Jordan, I think it goes to your point about, you know, we may be in a space where we have to do some catch-up work uh, because the, the we need the education and we need the new vehicles in part because in churches of Christ, at least, our elders really were not taught how to take care of their ministers and why yeah. theologically we yeah. ought to be taking better care of them yeah. than businesses take care of their employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so question number three, because we have to move on. Uh, this is a great conversation, but I wanted to make sure I asked this. Uh, Dave Ramsey and popular Christian financial teaching. Did you find it somewhat ironic that what Ramsey has to teach in terms of how to save for retirement, which is also interesting, exactly what the Wall Street Journal does teach as well in terms of saving for retirement. Did you find that that it was ironic that their approach uh, was what Gillard Tucci was saying, hey, um, that's not working. Did you what, what, what were your thoughts when you read that? Uh, my opinions of Dave Ramsey aside. Yeah, um, obviously, <laughs> um, Dave Ramsey is an, an, an excellent example of do it yourself. Don't trust the government. Only you can succeed. Uh, rugged individualism, which, of course, I think it's a pretty, pretty good match for the, the for the theology and the ecclesiology of churches of Christ. So it's no yeah. wonder 
that he really appeals to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that mentality um, doesn't fully capture the mutuality in which we are invited to in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, there was, was that, was that kind and gracious and, and gentle enough? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here's the deal for theologically. There's something better. Mm-hmm. There's something better than that. Um, if we'll just be willing to trust it, um, and to trust each other. Um, and so I, you know, I, it doesn't strike me as, as strange at all that churches of Christ and would potentially favor, a Dave Ramsey approach and see the value in in what he what he proposes. Right, and the, the I don't know if you want to summarize. You guys have a better um, idea of the sum how to summarize Dave Ramsey's teaching. But he's like, do the four hundred one k employers employer sponsored retirement plan, get the match, and then save the rest of your ten to fifteen percent of your annual income in a Roth IRA. Uh, is that basically what how you understand his approach to be? Yeah, and so those are the those, those are the traditional retirement vehicles that Gilarducci says they don't work. What were you going to say, Trey? No, I, they uh, first of all the Roth. Uh, I just I'm, it's not a great vehicle when you get started because you're putting the taxes off. Yeah, um, and that's that's not a great move. Um, but also, um, it that particular approach. Um, betrays, I think, some of Ramsey's um, uh, motivations of supporting a corporate mindset yeah. uh, and, and really kind of idolizing the business success mindset mm-hmm. uh, that is so prevalent in much of our financial advising, financial wealth uh, conversations. Um, as you've mentioned to me, Jordan, the 401k is really great for businesses. Um, Saves them money. so good. Mm-hmm. It makes them money, and but it's it's helping them in the short run more than it's helping the employee in the long run. Right. So there's a certain amount of injustice that's a part of that that I think Ramsey overlooks. Yeah, and I think our li- listeners and uh, audience needs to know that the creator of the 401k, Ted Benna, says, I created a monster, how it's being used to offer to people to plan for retirement, to save retirement. That's not what it was created to do. And so no wonder why Gilarducci says, yeah, it's been a failure because it's ironically, you know, being used to something it was never intended to be used for. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so you said you, you take advantage of life insurance. Um, what, what particular vehicle is that? And, uh, you know, and I want to want you to give your answer in light of another aspect of Ramsey's teaching, which is like, stay away from life insurance in terms of using it to plan for retirement. He and the Wall Street Journal have that kind of same approach and mentality. It's only for the very, very, very rich. Uh, everybody else stay away from it because it's don't do it. Um, and so they're vehement against it, which I found was interesting as well. Like, what are your thoughts on the life insurance that, uh, vehicle that you're using, especially in light of Ramsey? So. Um... For us, this is what worked for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one thing that a lot of the, this is part of what the Ramsey approach does, rubs me the wrong way is because there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. Um, <laughs> there, there's not the right way to do it. But for us, what worked is that, yes, that was our largest investment each month. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that we were putting more money into that than anywhere else. And we understood that going in. Now, we also understand that one of the reasons we did that was so that we would do two things at once. 
we would both have a life insurance policy in the event of something tragic happening mm -hmm. to me or to my wife. Yeah. So we have that. But then we also have this ability when we reach a certain age to begin to draw out the value out of that slowly but surely, just mm -hmm. like we would if it was Social Security yeah. or just like if it was a uh, an IRA, um, an mm -hmm. IRA resource. Um, and it gave us the third part of it of being liquid. Right. So I mentioned earlier, you know, we got into a lot of debt um, when about, about 2010. And we really got to a spot where we're like, we have to, we have to break this cycle. Yeah. And so we took out that loan on the whole life insurance policy, which will sit there until we, we cash it in and then it will come out of it at that point. So we are, we borrowed from the future to pay for the present, um, but we could do it because it was accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what maybe we miss with some of the IRA and Roth IRA is that that's inaccessible. You pull that out, you're paying a truckload of taxes on it. For us, short run, that was the right short run decision, which we wouldn't have had that option. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very grateful that we had a financial advisor early on who said, this isn't something everyone does, but right. here's why I think it's valuable for you, mm -hmm. because you may need to have access to, to credit later on, and you'll be able to use this for that. Um, That's great. That's great. Um, in my short stint as seeking to be a financial professional, in my training and experience, one of the vehicles I learned about was an index universal life policy. Um, and uh, what I learned about that uh, was like you were saying, it is definitely way more liquid than traditional accounts where if you did need to dip into it, you can make it with uh, not so much a withdrawal, but um, what, what is the term you borrow out of it and alone, alone, yeah. alone, and there's no penalty. You can put that money back if you want, but you don't have to. And that, that whatever money is in there, despite taking that loan out, that money still accrues interest at the same amount. It's not detracted by the loan you take out. And so index universal life in terms of liquidity vastly is way better than a 401k, Roth IRA, et cetera. Yeah. When you think about the way debt, the debt crisis plays into the financial investment and retirement crisis that we're facing, uh, when you think about the way banks have really closed ranks with regards to unsecured personal loans, uh, they'd much rather hand you a credit card with a 15 month, 0% with a 20% interest on the back end. Um, they would much rather do that than hand you an unsecured loan. Uh, when you consider how difficult it is to get our hands on anything that doesn't have 20% interest attached to it at some point, to me, that, that represents uh, an opportunity for us and for our churches, frankly, imagine a church that is say, that would say our retirement work for you is to make sure this whole life insurance policy, this IUL insurance policy is paid for, because that way, if you run into trouble, you've already got access to this and mm -hmm. you can take it with you when you go. Um, is it just me or does that make sense? I, I don't know. That almost makes too much sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Doug Andrew is one proponent of, you know, index universal life among other vehicles like the FIA. And he, he calls it the laser fund and laser. He's got a laser like test for every product. And he's like, nothing beats, at least in his perspective, nothing beats that IUL, other traditional accounts pay on comparison. Now he says, you know, that should be the foundation for your accumulation of assets for retirement. That doesn't mean, Hey, don't, 
take the 401k at work and get the match. You can go ahead and do that. Just don't make that your foundation. But like, again, everybody that I talked to and I met with on Zoom over 2020 and, and, and made the initial pitch, nobody ever heard of using life insurance in that way. So they were very skeptical and like, no, I feel safe and, and comfortable with my 401k, 403b. So there was a, an obstacle to get past for many people um, because they were unaware of uh, using life insurance in that way. Did you have that ask, obstacle yourself in your mind when you heard that? Mm-mm. Okay, no. interesting. I knew, I knew so little. I knew so little about investment and retirement to go back to our university side. I knew so yeah. little about it that I spent at least a fair amount of time asking who can I trust to teach me? Um, and thankfully, we had someone that we knew, who we trusted, who took good care of us, who had our best interests in mind, um, who educated us. And this was twenty. This is nineteen ninety nine and two thousand. This was a long time ago. Yeah. By by by, by financial uh, uh, era, if you will. Um, who he said, no, this is your foundation. It's not where you. It's not where you end, but this is where you start, um, and you go from there. Um, so uh, yeah, I. If I if I were tell, talking to somebody who was 24 and coming out of seminary, I would say you got three or four hundred bucks a month you can invest. Start there, yeah, because yeah. it costs you that much per month to to have the cover the premium on it. But that's that will be one of the wiser investments you can make. Right. Uh, you guys were talking about the uh, liquidity thing. We used to say in accounting, cash is king, <laughs> and really, it's liquidity is king, not cash. Mm-hmm. Because right. there's so many other things that are are liquid, um, and the real question is how can you get your asset from being, um, you know, tied up and into a liquid form? And I think your your comment about credit um, is so true. Right now, we're we're moving back with the high interest rates now, finally, to where the marketplace is starting to look at debt as a bad thing again. And I think that hopefully will give kind of permission to look at things like the Ramsey model of saying we need an emergency fund. And a lot of people then just say, well, that's my credit limit on my credit card. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a you know $4,000 credit limit or a $20,000 credit limit. I mean, these cards get high quickly. And uh, well, we'll just use that as our emergency fund. And, and so I think that can get people into you know, one medical uh, emergency can get them into this crazy debt and they just lay the the credit card down, whether it's, you know, that's another part of the financial picture that churches don't often offer is uh, if you have to go on an ambulance ride and you're on, you know, nothing insurance, then that, that ambulance ride is going to be wipe out your emergency fund, um, potentially be something that somebody draws on their IRA early for um, these things that, that really, kind of torpedo you early and uh, and can be really really devastating to that cash flow picture that you guys are talking about with with liquidity so yeah really important um just to think about that differently than just what do you have in the bank or what do you have accessible with credit limit um yeah nice all right two more questions i've run out of time but i want to make sure i get these in um and in a previous conversation, Trey, you you had mentioned and really emphasized this aspect of the research that that I that I sent you. But the question is: Is retirement wealth inequality a justice issue in your mind that is essential for the church to address for not just pastors, but for for everybody? Because the entire all, majority of Americans are in this crisis just as much. 
Yeah, I think uh, theologically, to, to, to use a, a, a historical view of it, we really do have kind of this Gnostic appeal to, it's not about the physical, it's all about the metaphysical and the yeah. spiritual, and that's really what the church is to be about. Yeah. And uh, lost in that half-truth is the realities of financial injustice in the United States of America, which is my experience. Um, that's yeah. That's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. But because we are in that space, you know, my question for churches would be, okay, starting with those you know best, what does it look like to create a more just financial system for the people who have committed their career and their vocation to you? That's the big theological question. And that does include when are they going to retire and how will they retire? Will they be able to retire yeah. and be able to take care of their, themselves and their family? Uh, That to me is a justice issue, and it's an ecclesiological issue that um, uh, we we are woefully underprepared for, and what we have just done so poorly at, very poorly. And so do you think um, the Nazareth Manifesto that we find in Luke 4 in terms of Jesus framing his mission in light of Jubilee, do you think the Jubilee ethic is a good framework for the church to start approaching this more seriously to help people out in terms of helping them build their assets that, that will sustain them and give them a flourishing span of their retirement, which is going to be even longer because we're living longer and more people are spending more time within that third age of, of life and retirement. I think the Nazareth manifesto, the Jubilee idea, um, if it can do anything for us, it ought to be able to stir our imagination. Yeah. Because that's what Jesus was trying to do in that space, right? He wanted to stir the imagination of those people around him to say, what if, you know, what, what if the prophets actually meant what they said? <laughs> what if Jubilee, yeah. what if Jubilee really meant something tangible, mm-hmm. not just some ideal that was laid down in the Mosaic law? Yeah. Um, what? <laughs> What if? And I yeah. I think that's what the Nazareth Manifesto invites us to, mm-hmm. is it challenges us to say, where are we making assumptions about the way things are versus the way God imagines them that they can be? Yeah. And uh, I think retirement is a big part of that. We're just shrugging our shoulders and going, yeah, it's going to be tough for them. Yeah. yeah. Are, are, are you the kingdom of God or are you the kingdom of God? Are the, are the resources there or are the resources there? Where might we find the resources, the unused resources within our movement that could then be used to take care of those who took, who took most care of us? Yeah. And I, I think our imagination is way too small. And the Nazareth Manifesto invites us to wake up and get those ideas going again. Yeah, you, had- you, you do a great job of reminding us to do that. It's like today start today right jesus yeah. says today this has been fulfilled and you're hearing right and and you are just saying like let's start with the people right here and so i think that's a really great way of of normalizing and saying there's inequality everywhere we can start today we can start here um so that's really good trey yeah and trey i think you are right and because uh what you had to say about how this kind of gnostic way of thinking that has infiltrated Christian theology since the first century, perhaps for many Christians that, um, but especially I I've seen it and experienced it in churches of Christ, how that platonic dualism, where it's like the spiritual is good, the physical is bad, 
eternal life is somewhere else outside of the physical creation. The soul gets to go spend bliss in the presence of God. That is really, I would think in my mind, um, you know, it messes up a whole lot of theology, resurrection and new heavens and earth, number one, but also it kind of messes up this Jubilee ethic because it's like it spiritualizes that promise of land that everybody got their land back when the Jubilee would come around. And so do you think that that's the main obstacle to get past for the church to start to take action in this regard? What a limited imagination we have that we think that the Jubilee, and we have been taught that the Jubilee mindset is all about how Christians will come back to Israel and claim the land so that no. Jesus can come back once we've claimed the land. Mm. Really? That's the best we can do? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best we can do? Uh, we're capable of so much more than that. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So much more. Yeah. So much more. Yeah. And I I, I just want to say this probably more so from, on the behalf of our listeners and viewers than anything. But uh, Walter Brueggemann said that he had this to say in his book on the land. He says that a mass urban society, everyone must have the social economic equivalent of land. And so a question I raise in my final project is, is retirement income that equivalent that the church must help all people to achieve within its alternative or alternative economy? Do you think that that's a good equivalent to the land if, uh, back in the, the first century in the time of Israel? Well, if, uh, if we've taken the land away from our pastors by having a parsonage, uh, then perhaps we should offer them the land back, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, as they retire to say, that, yeah, we took away that uh, resource from you. Uh, and it was a parsonage has benefits, don't get me wrong. But yeah. it was we, we took that we took that. And what if we gave it back to you? Um, and I so I, I would say yes. Um I think, and this gets into the last question a little bit um, that you asked me, Jordan, yeah. which is about soul care and retirement. Right. And that right. kind of leads into this question. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think there's a double-edged sword here um, because on the one hand, um, soul care invites us to a radical acceptance of what is. Um, it, the, the practice of welcoming that you see in so much Ignatian spirituality is truly transformative because it allows you to say, what is mine to do? And what is not mine to do and to sit in peace with knowing that what what is not mine to do may have a dramatic impact on outcomes of for my life. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of uh, contemplative approach to life is sometimes very much at odds with the I've got to make sure I have enough money to retire so we can sometimes find a tension there, however, again let's be more imaginative here. For me, soul care is ultimately about restoration and rest. And one of the reasons, one of the uh, symptoms, if you will, of our inability to rest is our inability to create opportunities for that rest. And so retirement land, if you will, is an investment in the rest to which we are invited and to which of which we are robbing so many of our ministers who are in their 50s and 60s and now 70s, we have robbed them of rest. Mm. That's soul care. That's yeah. a soul care failure. Mm. So I, I would say that the contemplative space invites us to say we are going to welcome what is what is, and we're going to bring our full self into that. And we're not going to immediately say this is good or this is bad. We're simply going to be 
fully present. But at the other side of that soul care double-edged sword is we have devalued rest mm. and it shows up in the way in which we have not taught ministers to take care of themselves. We have not provided vehicles through the massive, massive resources, even a, even a relatively disconnected network of churches like churches of Christ have massive assets, yeah. massive. Mm-hmm. And yet we're asking our ministers to work into their seventies and beyond. Right. Because they don't have any other choice. Yeah. What is that if not a failure of imagination to create rest for people who need it? Mm. That's so oh, very well put. With that you may all stand and sing. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to come <laughs> forward, man. All right. Sing the song. Trust and obey. <laughs> um, yeah. So, thanks, Trey. That was good. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I want to, yeah, I don't want to end there. I want just kind of maybe ask a few concluding questions here but that was awesome so the purpose of 1128 like you said was to counter the causes and effects of burnout among faith leaders so did you you probably touched on this earlier before how often or did you see finances or retirement savings as a reason for burnout with those ministers pastors you did work with I, i think it was a factor um i think where i saw it most was in fear of the unknown um it, it, and it's it's almost uh, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. Uh, and finances were very much tied up into that. Um, and so this this uh, this fear of what happens if I leave because I won't have I won't have these I won't have parsonage allowance that gives me low taxes. I won't have my health insurance taken mm-hmm. care of by the church, which uh, a fair number of churches do. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't have any of those assets. And so the fear of leaving those behind and the economic insecurity mm-hmm. that would be the immediate result of leaving, if not perhaps the long term, but certainly the immediate, um, that that fear factor is very much a part of it. Um, I wish, I wish um, that more ministers would take into account taking care of their families in the later part of their career and as their kids graduate and go to college as one reason to, um, and this is where I'm at right now, as one reason to leave ministry. Mm. Um, Mm. The church is not going to take care of you. And the sooner you can come to radical acceptance of that, Mm. the sooner you can come to that radical acceptance that the church is not going to take care of you, you have to ask some questions about, okay, Will I take care of myself and knowing that I can't ask this institution to do something it's not designed to do, or do I need to find a different vehicle vocationally so that I can take care of my family and myself and be able to rest at some point in my life? Right. Um, that is a hard space to be. I don't want to oversimplify it. That is a very complicated, mm-hmm. spiritually painful place to sit. But I do wish more ministers would take into account the financial impact of leaving ministry now, as opposed to 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, mm. it's a, it, it needs to be a factor in the equation. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Does any story like rise to the surface in your four and a half years with 1128 with a particular pastor in this regard? And if so, could you share that or any part of it? 
Yeah, I could share this part of it. I one of the one of the most common uh, one of the most common uh, responses to you know when I would ask the question, "Is it time to go?" Mm-hmm. Right. Let's just put that on the table. Is it time to go? The response would be, and I'm thinking of one person in particular who has since found a job and is in, is doing well. But in when he was in that liminal space, said. What am I going to do? Go do like you know, put on a barista, put on a barista's apron, and work at Starbucks for you know fifteen dollars an hour. What am I going to do? Yeah, um, I can't do that because I've got to be able to take care of my family. Yeah, um, and so uh, yeah, that 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 played out. That scenario played out several times of just not knowing what is out there um, that can actually better care, take care of of your family um, and. Um, you know, provide something beyond ministry in that regard. We, I saw that frequently, that mm-hmm. finances were a big reason people would stay. Okay. When in fact, it probably was mm-hmm. the more harmful long-term approach for their, their ability to rest and retire. Um, yeah. As- yeah. Yeah. But, and I, I think about uh, discipleship, right? If the third third of our life or our soul care is when we're most fruitful as people like Richard Rohrer and and others will tell us uh, for for reaching the lost and sharing and passing on the faith, then maybe part of our church decline is actually that we haven't been resting and we've been kind of continually, you know, passing this debt burden down of rest um, and finances and, 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 and that's part of our decline. And what if we cared for our family? Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about some of the churches I know where if the families of the leadership, whether it's the pastor or the elders or the deacons, if those families were still faithful and going to church, those churches would still be viable places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and how many ministers I know whose children are no longer faithful, um, and yet they may still be serving in, in, uh, into their retirement years. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a toll that's not just financial toll. It's a toll on your family. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good thing to point out. Yeah. Yeah. For me, in terms of fear, I was thrust out, if you will, not of my own choosing out of ministry, as you well know, Trey and Lars, you know, my story and an aspect of that fear that probably would have kept me in ministry was paying taxes. Whereas I could write it all off as, you know, like ministers are able to do housing allowance and not pay anything, or maybe even get something back every year. Now, the first year of paying taxes as a single divorce, single dad, divorced dad, um, who didn't claim his kids on his taxes, that was a rude, rude awakening. Now, my particular experience is, you know, not everybody's when they exit out of ministry, but that for me, probably I can think who's very prone to making decisions out of fear would have probably kept me in ministry longer as well. Yeah. It's a, it, it, fear is a factor uh, in, in a big way there. And again, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the state of our soul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the state of the state of uh, the soul in which we have, I think to kind of sum up and bring it back to the beginning, we've invited ourselves into that space because we haven't learned good stewardship as soul care early on in our ministry careers. Yeah. Um, it's not just stewardship to get rich and to be able to retire. And to be, I mean, it's not so that you can have a million bucks, you know, Dave Ramsey's financial uh, uh, financial plan and all that. That's, that's fine. Yeah. 
But for us, theologically, the imagination is, can we have stewardship now so that we can have rest when that is what our physical bodies are asking of us is yeah. rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish we did. I wish we did that better. And I'm glad you're doing this project, Jordan. I hope a lot of uh, universities read it. I hope a lot of our folks who are training ministers, uh, once they get out of their residencies and their internships, I hope that they will read this and and really bring it in, uh, re- really own it, um, because it could make a big difference for folks. And and what we hope will be another generation of ministers to come. Yes, we ho- we do hope for that. So in terms of wrapping up real quick, Trey, again, thank you very much for being a part of this. Your pastor experience and your experience with 1128 really provided some value uh, to this series that we're creating here. And so the last question in terms of wrapping up is like, what's some parting wisdom, parting advice uh, based off of your experiences for maybe individual pastors right now or, or for churches or both? Yeah, I think I would start with churches um, right now. Um, I, if I just had, if you were to, if I was to put it in front of me, I would start with churches and elders in particular. And I would just sit down and say, enumerate for me in what ways you're taking care of your pastors better than the world is taking care of their employees. Yeah. Um, and if we're not, then we can ask the question, okay, what's keeping us from doing that? We get really, really honest with ourselves and really find space for repentance and confession. What's keeping us from that? And then how do we get there? You, you can't you, you take a first step at least, right? You can't fix the whole thing overnight. But I think that's the thing that I would invite elders into in that space is to say, let's just have some radical confession for a minute. And let's be honest with ourselves uh, and put it out there and say, okay, we haven't done that well. What mm-hmm. might we be able to do? Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Lars, any closing thoughts? Well, just for any individual pastors out there, um, you, you may not do this for yourself. You may not make wise decisions yourself. That's why you have an eldership. That's why you have other pastors who should be speaking into your life. And so I, I think sometimes we have to get over that DIY initial thing of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. At, at some point, we have to be humble enough to accept somebody else. And uh, Trey, you mentioned finding someone to trust. Not all of us need to go out and get an accounting degree or become a financial planner or sell life insurance to learn about this Mm. stuff or launch a business. You know, we, you don't have to become a financial expert, find someone you can trust and be humble enough. And I actually assign this in the two I, I teach. um, Okay financial stewardship at the master's level at Bushnell. And I assign everybody a budget exercise where they fill it out, income and expenses, and then find a trusted person to visit with. What did you notice about your spending habits? And then you write a real, you know, one page reflection on that. What did you learn about that through the conversation with that trusted person? Sometimes it's just that vulnerable moment of noticing like, man, I'm going to the coffee shop a ton. And that's the first step um, of humility, because those are the places where you're going to start saving and you're going to actually uh, start investing in, in the right vehicles. But you're not going to do that yourself. You, you have to have a, a group around you accountable. And I think that's where the church could step in and say, pastors aren't going to save that money. Even if we gave them a stipend for retirement, they're going to use it 
for something else. Your spending always rises up. And so maybe we need to step in and say, we have to help ministers in spite of themselves um, in some ways. And we need to create some vehicles that aren't reliant on them having good self-control. Um, Cause I think that's part of the, the biggest problem with the DIY thing is we're just not good self-controlled disciplined people. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, guys, we got to wrap it up now. Uh, we, we had a long conversation, a great conversation. I appreciate you Trey for being a part of this inaugural uh, episode recording of our series, almost essential. Um, and stay tuned. Uh, if you're listening or watching on YouTube, stay tuned for 15 more episodes. There are episodes that are going to be following up over the course of the next couple of months. Again, Lars, Trey, thank you for being part of this episode. And we'll see everybody later. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. All right. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of our Almost Essential podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to reach out, you can contact me, Jordan Koss, on Facebook or Instagram. We hope this series is a valuable resource for you, pastor or otherwise. And remember, you are not almost essential. Your role and service in the church is essential, as well as saving for retirement in your holy vocation and calling.